Thank you to everyone who has been supporting the podcast by subscribing, giving us five-star ratings, writing glowing reviews, sharing the podcast far and wide, and donating. If you haven't yet, we hope you do. We have amazing things planned, and you are making it possible for us to continue producing the podcast. Most of all, thank you very much for joining us on these wild adventures into history, ideas, and existential mystery. If you're a podcaster and you'd like to interview Nachliel or me, please get in touch. In fact, if you're anyone who'd like to get in touch, please get in touch. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Mer Simcha. Nachliel is at MuseumToursIL. And we hashtag our posts about the podcast with hashtag ArtifactPodcast. Nachliel also does that Instagram thing, again, at MuseumToursIL. And we're both on Facebook, where we have a page for the podcast intuitively named Artifact Podcast. Nachliel and I both have other podcasts, and there are links for those below. Welcome to the Artifact Podcast, where we discuss the history, ideas, and existential mystery behind things, everyday things, and... Not-so-everyday things. And what's it going to be today? Today, everyday not everyday? It, today is going to be a box, an argaz, yes. Argaz, that's, well, that's the, a pretty everyday thing. Yeah, the Hebrew word argaz is really our focus. We're talking about boxes, because we're out-of-the-box kind of people, and we want to talk about boxes. Now, this word, Argaz, pops up in one place in the Tanakh. Only in one place, and that is in First Samuel chapter 6 in Shmuel Aleph Perik Vav, and that is in a very important story which has to do with the Philistines capturing the Ark of the Covenant, Awan Abrit, in battle, and that Ark ends up wreaking havoc in their temples of Dagon and their various coastal cities. What a in, turnaround. They must have been so happy to get it. Like, oh, oh they were definitely then... happy or even too scared. They didn't know what to do with it. They're like, be strong and be men, you Philistines, and mm-hmm. fight for your lives. And they ended up, there was such a great te- pep talk that's recorded well, that's there. That's right. They were terrified when they terrified. saw it coming into battle. Because they're like, we're going to lose. And then, yeah. <laughs> and then it was captured. Then it so, was captured, and they didn't know what to do with themselves. And, and after that, they were plagued by some sort of hemorrhoids. I mean, it was pretty terrible. And they had the idea of sending it back with tribute, which included golden, uh, well, it's supposed to be... Golden hemorrhoids? It's supposed to be golden uh, rectums. I hate to say it that way, but we actually found them in excavations in the area that they made them from metal. So it was something, yeah, yeah, it's really, really... uh, the back end of history, but <laughs> but these were uh, behind the scenes. Be, oh my God! But the thing is that th- this is just a terrible word that the Tanakh actually changes it. So there's the word that's written, but you don't say that. You say something that's a lot more friendly because it's such an awful story in terms of the graphics. Mm-hmm. And so they send these golden figurines. Let's put it that way in an argaz alongside the Aron, which means the Aron Abrit, the covenant, but mm-hmm. it literally just means a box. They send and, a box beside a box. Yes. And they basically sent it in Amazon same-day shipping. <laughs> yeah. They were eager to get rid of it. They were definitely eager to get rid of it, and they shipped it off to Beit Shemesh, which is where all the Americans are who have Amazon Prime. Mm. So they're expecting same-day delivery. Speaking of Amazon, I know that you... Got together a lot of material. Oh my god! I, I just went. I just went down that rabbit hole today. That was so much fun. I was looking really for the origins of the expression "out of the box" because the mm-hmm. war, the expression "out of the box," the idiom actually means two different things. Right? Okay. One of them just means ready-made. <gasps> oh, you just pull it straight mm-hmm. out of the box, and yep. it's ready to go. Yep. 
no right. effort needed, right? And Which that's kind means of that it's precisely not out of the box. Exactly. The other sense of the word. But the other one means unconstrained by conventional things. Mm -hmm. So you think uh, thinking out of the box means being unconventional, mm -hmm. because the box means you're constrained, mm -hmm. and so out of the box thinking. So mm -hmm. I just sort of went down these YouTube suggestions of next <laughs> videos, and I just got into the history of of where the cardboard box came from, corrugated boxes. That's what you call those uh, fluted cardboard uh, p boxes. Like where there's The paper is like fluted. Thin, it's it's yeah, rounded, it's, it's like wavy. That, yeah, the wavy so thing th between That's kind of like two. a treated mm. wood, soft okay. wood. There's okay. an amazing history what kind of behind wood is that. that. I don't know, just a very kind of soft wood. Okay. So well, let's put it this way. The invention of paper, first of all, okay. it's all related. Okay. So the invention of paper is associated with the Chinese, um, the Han Dynasty. We're talking about 2,200 years ago, give or take, first, second century BCE. Okay. Right? And that, in, that invention made its way perhaps to West Asia and to Europe through the trade in the Silk Road, which was around for over a thousand years, right? So this is not something mm -hmm. that happened instantaneously. People yeah. didn't write on paper until relatively recently. Okay, mm -hmm. but we do know that there's a record of the Han Dynasty in the second century BCE, like 2,100 some years ago, who made these, um, these soft, uh, uh, treated mulberry wood in order to store uh, fruit and stuff like that. Which is not surprising because that's the general area where paper was supposedly invented. Okay. So they just had these fibers of softwood trees so to stick to capture. So you're saying that the, the paper was a storage material as much as it was a writing material? It was a storage material. Primarily. Primarily. I don't know if it was a writing. I'm oh. not really sure about the, the uh, paper, but paper is treated wood. Paper is made from wood. Right. I mean, the Han Dynasty, the, do they also have paper money? No, the, the earliest money is in the world is later than the 6th century, 7th century. When's the century? first paper money? A hundred years ago, maybe two hundred years, no more than two hundred. No, I thought it was ancient. I thought the Chinese had paper. Paper money. notes? The Chinese had money, which is these tokens with a square hole in the center. I saw that. Um, I've seen those tokens in a special exhi exhibition in the British Museum all about money. Huh. What? I can't believe those people are doing that. Yeah, paper currency first developed in the Tang Dynasty, China, during the seventh century. Wow. Well, I was wrong. That is so cool. Like banknotes? In yeah. other words, that there's a banknote which is representing money that's in... Yeah. Wow. Seventh century banknotes. Because I know that they had notes. They had some sort of guarantee in notes in the, uh, the Mongols. They had the system for money, right? I think that they did, or was that the Templars? <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I'm, there's because there's a system of having a particular trade route and having the guarantee of the the rulers that this money is going to be respected when you get to the other side. So you don't have to carry it with you. You have a note. Uh, that was this is very with, old. That was a thing with Marco Polo. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea that paper banknotes were in the seventh century because in Europe they they're only fairly recently, right? Well, like, yeah, all that. Like two hundred years ago. Wow. Yeah. Wow. This just blew my mind. Oh my God, that is really cool. Yeah. That is really cool. So that, that, that was a discovery, wow. So, uh, I mean, I was going down the you rabbit hole of boxes. live on the Artifact Podcast. Yes, well, that's, that's why we love this stuff, because this is how we react when we learn something new. <laughs> so that's really cool. Um, so okay, but keep going with paper. So, so, so I went into boxes paper boxes. Here. So the big what's the most obvious place to think about boxes? When you think about boxes today, what comes to mind? I lived in the States for seven years. 
Amazon, Amazon Shipping, Amazon okay. Prime, right? Amazon Prime has been a thing since 2005, right? So if you think about it, in the digital era, paper mm -hmm. was in a decline, the paper companies, but mm -hmm. then you had Amazon Shipping. And suddenly all these companies are, their really? stocks are going through the roof. Wow. Because people are ordering boxes. Now, the more this developed, people used to be really upset with how the boxes, like you'd order something small and you'd get a huge box. Mm -hmm. And so they had to gradually customize them more. I was watching a whole video from this company, Georgia Pacific Corrugated, because okay. corrugated is the term for the particular kind of co the cardboard, which okay. has two layers of, of thin paper and, and in the and center wave. it's kind of fluted. Yeah. It's called, so each one is made from a different kind of treated wood. And there's, mm. I, you, just, you just get sucked into how they make it. It's amazing how they heat the wood and there's streamlines and they, there's, a co there's an adhesive. It's like the most boring thing. They made it so interesting. And then you get into this whole conversation about, you're hearing the, the, the marketing strategy of Amazon and the things that they're dealing with and then how they went into plastic packaging for books and bubble wrap, but then that doesn't degrade mm, so well right, and that's, that's getting right. backlash because you, you can't just recycle that in regular recycle bin. So it's a nuisance. And so if you want, they're going back to cardboard. Wow. So cardboard wow. boxes, and then they have like paper it's incredible. It's really incredible, the whole study of cardboard boxes. Now, the United States is the Saudi Arabia of trees because they have the right, <laughs> they have the right type of trees. For, like India, India has trees, but they don't have the right trees. So you're saying that the same way that Saudi Arabia is exporting oil everywhere, the U.S. is you exporting materials for cardboard for boxes. For cardboard boxes. Everywhere? So they're the big, there's like five companies in the East Coast uh -huh. who, which, make, uh, which make cardboard boxes. Hmm. And this is them. You know what kind of, kind of wood you make boxes out of? No. Boxwood. That was terrible. But Is it true? No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think so anyway. But that, that, that's really amazing how, how this all relates because it's degradable. And by the way, they have these regulations where they're only, like Amazon, mm -hmm. they will only use recycled cardboard that's made from recycled cardboard. So they're uh, really pushing that, but it has to do wow. with cost efficiency and all that stuff. So there's a lot going into that, hmm. but the, the concept of boxes really fits a lot into the necessity for having same day delivery and something mm -hmm. which is degradable. Mm -hmm. And it's really cool. So you go into the history of, of cardboard boxes. So the first time cardboard is actually used in any way, shape or form like this is actually 1817. So there's a hundred years before World War I in Germany used for some kind of board game. But then there's these records huh. from, from, from London. But from I don't usually think of board games as a source for materials innovation, but this is like the first recorded use of cardboard that we have. I think so, alongside with it being used. The first time it's mentioned in the United States is also sometime in the 1800s. 1800s. Yeah. It's written in, in an instruction manual for uh, printing. In other words, it's been in use. It uses the word scabbard. It doesn't seem to do with the scar scabbard that we put the sword in. It's just, it's, I'm not gonna go there right now. But the but point is that it has to do with the printing press. The scabbard does seem to be related to the Greek word for cut. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense than the scabbard for the sword. So, yeah. okay, I guess it's collected, but, but here's the cool part. So in 1856, there's a London-based company which came up with a way to, well, what do you see people in the 1850s wearing on their heads? You know, they're wearing these top hats. Right? right, right, and right. so they have to have a way to sell these or, or store or right. transport Abraham these. Lincoln with his iconic top hat. So you have to store yeah. them in something. So they came up with these boxes made of some sort of hardened paper, cardboard of ah. some sort, which was corrugated paper. 
So, but, but, but it wasn't patented. It was sure like they sort of used it. Huh. The patent shows up in 1871 with Albert Jones, who patented a new way of packaging, which was an improvement on paper. So he, what he realized basically is that the way the machines in his factory for packaging were using some kind of thick paper and they were just wasting so much time and energy and cutting it a certain way to individually. And then he came up with the idea, but wait a minute, if we just make it a little bit thicker and make the blades a little bit sharper, we'll be able to sort of streamline and cut larger amounts. And they basically made modifications using this cardboard, this flute, this corrugated paper, mm. in which he was able to sort of cut much more. And what, what he was able to do is in two hours to produce the amount the companies previously, the manufacturing company previously did an entire day. And then I, I just discovered something really, really cool, which is like the first order uh, from like, what was it? What's the American uh, biscuit, like, like a biscuit company of some sort. It's, it's, I don't remember the name of the company, but they got an order for 2 million packages. And like, this is, and it's incredible. Like just opened up marketing and transporting things in a convenient way. So this just had, and now we have the box. Hmm. Right. So this modern box really only started in like the mid to late 1800s. Did this also give us standard sizes for boxes? Like once you have industrial I, manufacturing much, of pretty much. Hmm. Yeah, they were probably made in several different standard sizes. Yeah. Yeah. Even in the Amazon early days, they had such standard boxes that people were just like, why do I have to have a huge box for a toothbrush? And then they started printing out the picture of what this is. Like, this is a mixer. This is a refrigerator. And they printed it out in black ink on the box so you know what the box is. So they had standardized boxes for different things. They've gradually improved it because there's just other considerations. But cutting the specification is expensive. So they're mm -hmm. constantly looking for ways to scale without expending too much. So Amazon is driving the box economy. Yeah, I think they're a uh, pretty high percent. They're basically giving business to the box company. Mm -hmm. Like they're keeping them in business, Wow. basically. Let's go back to our story in Sefer Shmuel in the book of Samuel. Mm -hmm. There we have essentially two different words for what are more or less boxes sandwiched up against each other. So we have our Aaron, right, which is the ark as we translate it. What the heck is an ark? Well, in, in modern Hebrew, Aaron is just a closet or a wardrobe, right? right? And then the other word, which we mentioned before, is Argaz. And when the Philistim send back the these, Aaron... These golden, the tribute. Right, when they, they put their tribute of golden hemorrhoids and mice in the Argaz, in that kind of box. So the Argaz is going alongside the Aaron when they send it back to Beit Shemesh. Right. So the question is... Mm -hmm. What is with this word, argaz? Because we have another very normal word for box mm -hmm. in the Torah, which is not used. It could have just said teba. Yeah. And it doesn't. And this word argaz doesn't appear anywhere other than, say, for Shmuel. It's a one-time word. A one-time word. So why this one-time word? Why not just use another word for box? What are your thoughts? Well, I have one suggestion is that maybe argaz is a foreign word, right? So, so if we were to, to look up Rashi on this, right? Rashi gives an explanation. Yeah, he gives some French word. A French word, escrin, something like that. Yeah. And then uh, it gets translated. Into kufsa. Into kufsa, which is a modern which Hebrew it, word for? Box. Box. <laughs> but, it's, but it's another foreign word too. Also a foreign word, It right. comes from the Greek kapsa. Right. Well, we'll come back to that. <laughs> yeah, we'll definitely right. come back so to that. So we're translating foreign words into foreign words here. So one suggestion is that argaz is a foreign word. Right. And if it's a foreign word and we see it only in this story, maybe it's coming from the language of the Philistines, from Philistinese. So, so this is, must have been some sort of Philistine configuration, which 
we might, yeah, it's for all intents and purposes a box, but it's that Philistine thing. So yeah, we call the, they call it an Argaz. It's like the, the Philistine box. The, the Philistine box, yeah. Yeah. I don't know if there's anything special about a Philistine box. But... Maybe it's a design. I don't know. I mean, there have been significant, like 25 years of excavations in, in Tel Mikne, which is a Philistine Gat, and Tel Safit, and all these different places. And Have they found box innovation there? I don't know of any. They found a lot of pottery. They found an, uh, an altar. They found a lot of different... That's an interesting question. I wonder if it's about the material. I mean, maybe of... it was made of wood, so wood pretty much deteriorates. deteriorates You're not going to find yeah. it. You're not going to find... Rarely going to find wood. Hmm. Well, okay, so the other suggestion for this word, Argaz, mm -hmm. is that it's not a foreign word, or not at least a Philistine word, but it's actually a Semitic word, and maybe it would come from... Actually, I initially floated this to you as a, as a joke. Like, maybe right. it's from the same word that we get Rogas from, the, the word for... Anger in modern so, Hebrew. So, so rogas, like, rogas means agitation or frustration or anger, right? Mm -hmm. It has those connotations. Right. So, so we were just joking and you found something. Yes, yeah, so I thought well, maybe argaz is really from rogas. Or, and maybe we'd say there's a, a more fundamental meaning to that word was something like shaking. And an argaz is the thing that prevents things from shaking around too much. That kind of makes sense. So I went down the rabbit hole of looking at etymological speculation mm -hmm. about this word argaz, and uh, I wound up on the talk page for a Wikipedia article, and there was basically a gang war there, where you had- the, uh, Around the word argaz? Around the word argaz oh my the etymology. So you had the- like the This is a serious boxing match. Uh, yeah, there's a serious <laughs> boxing match. And, uh, and in that ring- On the uh, one side, on one corner. Yeah, in the one corner you had the, the Philo-Semites who were arguing for the Semitic root. And then on the other hand, you had these Philo-Indo-Europeans wow. who were, were sticking up for the, the Philistines. Because the thought is, and this also is speculative, okay. that the Philistine language, whatever they would have been speaking, would have been an Indo-European language. Because we think that maybe they were from the Aegean Sea, that they were maybe the sea people. The, the famous sea people who the were repelled by one of the pharaohs were talking about these serious, vicious warrior invaders. We have wars of them recorded. And they invaded probably in several shifts, several, at least three waves, into, you know, the inner the coastline. Like they're not really on the sea, but they're like they're further in, but they're on the coast. If we limit our survey to the Tanakh, then we'll see that there seem to be different waves of these people. So like you were mentioning to me before- Avimelech. Avimelech, yeah. who has a name which Avimelech is- Avimelech is clearly Semitic. Semitic name, my father right. is the king. Right, that's definitely Semitic. But then again, the Philistines in the time of Avraham, and just in case you know our, our, our listeners are not familiar with the story, the story is with, with Abraham. Avraham is approached by uh, Avimelech, the king of the Philistines in Grar, which is somewhere in the, in the area, in the coast, north of Beersheba, so not even necessarily by the coast. And it's a pretty much agrarian, no, no pun intended with the word grau, an agrarian society <laughs> where Avimelech tries to, uh, to take Sarah, his, his wife, just tell, tell him you're my sister so they don't kill me. And Abraham rebukes him and Avimelech is plagued, but then he lets her go and he says, you're such, you're such good people, why don't you stay here? And he blesses them and he gives them gifts. So that's Avimelech, the king of the Philistines. Except, if that story sounds familiar, it's because you heard it right before that with Avram and Sarah and Pharaoh. Yes. And you hear it again right after that with, with Yitzchak and, and Avimelech. And yeah, so that's kind of, the, they're doing the she's my sister jazz. And that's where we hear Avimelech, but these people are very different in character than the vicious Philistines of Goliath. 
and, and King David later on and, and, and earlier than that. Basically, we've got what appear to be different waves of people coming into more or less the same geographic region, and the Hebrew Bible is going to call them all Philistim, which so, is interesting in terms of what the word itself means, Polshim. Peleshet, Liflosh means to invade. Invaders. Philistim mean invaders. Right, which again suggests that at least the way that we're looking at them on some level is, well, these people don't really belong in Canaan. They aren't classed as Canaanites right. at all. They aren't... Right, and the, the, actually the archaeological evidence shows a lot of similarity between their pottery and its design and the Aegean, or Cretan. I mean, that's yeah. so there's a discussion. Are they from Crete? Are they from the Aegean? Who are these people? But it's clearly a conglomerate of people who aren't local, who may have married in with the locals at some point, or with the previous ones who were more assimilated. It's They're complex. It's not, I, I like the idea that they're part of the sea people phenomenon, because the sea people are so terrifying and they wreak such havoc and it's dramatic and all that. But then the sea people have also become this kind of historical hypothesis where you could just kind of throw anything into them, you know, because they collapse civilization. And so historical records are not so great around them and they're mysterious and they're all over the place. Well, what we don't are you know saying? about them. And they're like the rug that you sweep history from that period under where you just don't know, like, who caused this or what. Oh, it must have been the sea people. I think I'm getting this from, from the book that I read by uh, Eric Klein, 1177 BC, when civilization collapsed. But, but you're talking but, about the collapse of the late Bronze Age. We yeah, don't yeah. really, that's more the Habiru, it's like it's a different subject. There's these mysterious invaders who, uh, who are invading the land. This has to do with the Alamarna letters. It's a whole thing. Yeah, but there we're talking just a, But that's not the sea people. That's people, invaders in the Levant. I'm not sure if we're talking about the same thing or about different things now. We can just sweep it under the carpet. I guess so. <laughs> anyway, do you have more about the Philistines? I mean, we, we can talk about some of their names. Oh, yeah, go for, I it, mean, go for it. So Avimelech, that's clearly a Semitic name. Now, whoever these Philistines were at the time, from a biblical perspective, we can say that those people who are living in the place you now know as the Philistines at the time in which you're receiving the Torah, that's the people lived in that region, but they weren't necessarily Philistine Philistines. In other words, they aren't those same people. They're people who live in the region, even though these are more Semitic or they're an earlier wave of migrants who, who are just more peaceful and agrarian. I mean, who knows? You're highlighting the difference between the different strata of Philistines. And uh, what do we mean, why, what do we do we mean we when, we, when we refer to them as them. when we look, there are several stories with Avraham, let's say, for example, Bereshit Yudalad, Genesis 14, which talks about the wars of these kings from the far end, ends of Mesopotamia coming in to deal with a local rebellion. There's a whole question around who they are and their identification, mm -hmm. but there's a clear list of cities in which it says, Melech Bela Hitzoah, the king of this city, which is now known as that, mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. the earlier one doesn't exist right, anymore. Right. So you sort of name it by what it's, what it's called now, but it used mm -hmm. to be called something else. So now, we're, we're, for all intents and purposes, the king of Imelech was a Philistine, even though historically he wasn't of the same people. But then in the same general area, we're, we're calling him a Philistine. He well, lives it, there. It's, it's like you're looking at the later Philistine and saying that, that those Philistines are the real Philistines, and now we're just going to sort of lump Avimelech together with them. It doesn't have to be that way. Maybe Avimelech really was a Philistine, and then the later ones, we call them Philistines. Who knows? Too. Who knows? My, my point is just that like there, there are different layers of people who seem to be... Mm -hmm grouped under this same name. We yeah. don't really know why they would be right. grouped the, under the, there. Right. The, they're just in the region and they're not of the area and they're invaders and they're a mixture. I don't know. They're, but they're complex. It's not really invaders. clear. So uh, I'll mention some of their names. So okay, the most, most famous Philistine name that you know. Goliath. Goliath. Okay. Other names. 
Um, how about Samson and Delilah? Hey there, Delilah. There you go. And then there's King David pretends to be a madman in the uh, court of Achish. Achish, the king of Gath, right? Yes. And so you have these names, Goliath, Delilah, and Achish. And these names are, where do they come from? Uh, are they Semitic? Are they not? What are they? Yeah, so, I mean, they... So Achish, Achish has Greek roots to it. It has a Greek character. Yeah, so there's actually a discovery. Uh, it's called the, the Ekron Stella, which is in the Israel Museum. It was found in Tel Mikneh, which is biblical Ekron. What is a Stella? It's a, it's a, it's a stone. It's a monument, okay. which is usually erected for a victory of some sort or a dedication. Like a so this is, Yeah, but the matzeva is generally, in modern Hebrew, a matzeva is generally taken to refer to a tombstone, uh, whereas uh, in like the past, the matzeva just is a stella. Yeah, it's a stella. It's okay. a stone. People would put up a stone. They put a board of stones called kuduru. There's different names for different types of, okay. so it's called a stella. Okay. So you have the stella of, of Ekron, which is in the Israel Museum. And it says on it the name Achish ben Padi, who is the Sar Ekron. So you have, mm. it's written in, the, first of all, the cool thing is that it's written in the Phoenician alphabet, which is uh, pretty much the Hebrew alphabet. Mm. So they've adopted the local alphabet, which is interesting because the Greeks adopted the Phoenician alphabet because with, from the Phoenicians, because through trade. Do we have a record of an earlier alphabet by the Greeks? No, they didn't have one. They didn't have one. So you have these Greek people, we think, who come here. And they, they use the local an alphabet, one. They use the local alphabet and then they, use it here. they export it home. Well, these ones are staying here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So they mention the names of five different kings of Ekron. There is Achish, Padi, Yasid, Ada, and Ya'il. Now, the last four have a Semitic character to them, but the first one is, has a Greek character, Achish. It doesn't match up with anything we know. Uh -huh. So if he's the first one then it might make sense that he's got a more Greeky name and then they kind of yeah. assimilate as they go. I mean, you even have earlier, we have Sisera, Kikoro, Kikoro. Like you have these oh, interesting, wow, that's yeah, that's another, that's a whole different story because yeah. there actually has been some kind of archaeological find with that name. We're not going to go there now. It's a different story, It's a, but it's earlier. Yeah, that's true. Sure Sisera is like, a, it's a name that really jumps out at you. Like, yeah, so you, so you have these, yeah. Um, so you have these Greek style names, and then Goliath, and by the way, there was an inscription found with the name Goliath, something like that. I met a counselor in a camp I worked in in the States who was the volunteer on the dig who actually found that piece of clay mm. under Aaron Mayer, of course, of, of Bar-Ilan University, so Aaron Mayer found it, but she's the one who found it. So I met her, so that's kind of cool. She was in the news yeah. for that. She had her five minutes of fame. It's a very nice story. And uh, yeah, so you have these people uh, who are here. Let's go back to these curious words, because when we translate Argaz, one of the mm -hmm. translations that we get is kufsa. Right. Right, which is a, a modern Hebrew word, which everybody takes, just kind of takes for granted as like, yeah, this is a word in modern Hebrew. Mechutz kufsa is how you say out of the box. Right. And really tonight, for the first time, you clued me into the fact that this word is also a foreign word, which never had yeah, occurred Yeah, it's, it's kapsa is Greek. Wait, kapsa is Latin. No, 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 no. Kapsa with a K is ah okay you're saying the I'll get there I'll, I'll get yeah, I'll okay. get to the okay. so no kapsa is kapsa is also Latin kapsula we'll get there in a moment but kapsa is also Greek and that that yeah. makes sense because a lot of Greek words in Mishnaic Hebrew mm -hmm. uh, especially in certain midrashim like this mm -hmm. is Devarim mm Rabbah -hmm. you'll, you'll have a lot of Greek words mm -hmm. in certain genres of midrash right so uh, kapsa shows up in the Mishnah Mishnaic it shows up in 
in Midrash, right? So it's really cool. But kapsa, the word capsule, what's a capsule? A capsule is like a little container. Like a, a, time cool, a container, and and we've been thinking, speaking of cap, a capsulat, like this is showing up. You have kids in school, right? Right. They're definitely talking about capsulat. Capsulat, right? Right. So capsulat are these little units. They actually sometimes make these wooden frames with plastic around them, so that kids are in small mm -hmm. divisions, capsules, yep. like cubicles, mm -hmm. right? They're cubicles, so they're getting them used to desk jobs, which yeah, they're not going to yeah, want, in in school. Because right. that's how, and, and they do this in synagogues now and in weddings, they just organize everything divided into these these cubicles so that you can be in larger groups because of the corona, right? Yep. So it won't spread. So this Subdivide is Subdivide the groups into capsules. Sub, in, into capsules. So the cool thing about capsule, and this is, it was a nice Facebook post by, by, by Professor Gashtivo. It's really, really nice where he points out that kids are going to school in these knapsacks, which are backpacks, right? And what does that have to do with capsulat and capsulat and going to school? It's such a fun story because the word capsula comes from kapsa with the suffix ula, which makes it the diminutive of kapsa. So kapsula means a small box. So that word is now used in schools, but it originally comes from uh, the, the kapsa is the case, which was used for documents or clothes or weapons by the, uh, the, Roman, the Roman medic, the Roman medic, ah, who was called the capsarius. Capsarius. The capsarius was the Roman medic. So, huh. so that's kind of cool. So the medic is known by his bag. Yeah, he's the guy with the box. Huh. Yeah, he's got the supplies in a little box, even yeah. though that was made with a wood, wood with a wooden top, yeah, right? Yeah. So, so the the nice line that that Guy Stiebel said was that the small the small school bags or knapsacks for carrying notebooks have come a very long way from uh, the wooden cases from the Roman army to the superhero or Dora the Explorer backpacks of today. Dora the Explorer. There you go. Yeah, my father's uh, college roommate does the or did the voice for the map. On Dora the Explorer. I didn't know maps can talk, but I guess in cartoons they, they, they do. They do in, in cartoons, yeah. Yes, they do. I mean, the map in Harry Potter talks back at you if it doesn't like you. The really? Marauder's map. In the movie? I, I, in the book. It doesn't talk back at you. Uh, well, Professor Snape tries to write on it, oh, and they start oh, making it, and then all four it. of them right, right. start giving them their right. opinions That's about right. him. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you have to speak to the map. It has some kind of personality. It's so, cool, right? Anyway. Yeah. Okay, so I have here uh, some additional stuff about kapsulot because I was wondering, well, where we're seeing this in Latin, we're seeing this in Greek. Can I get to something more fundamental? Can I find an Indo-European root? Okay. And so I opened up my Origins of English Words, a discursive dictionary of Indo-European roots by Joseph T. Shipley. And I Speaking saw, of ships and Philistines, yes. Yes. So under the entry for CAP, K-A-P, mm -hmm. it says that the fundamental meaning of this, what would you say, derived, projected, sort of like back projected root, the fundamental meaning would be something like take, grasp, or hold. So from there you get Latin capsa, like you were saying, box, case, Chase. Something which takes hold of something which contains something. Mm -hmm. okay. Right, but also chase, because when you chase something, you're going to contain it ultimately. Okay. You're going to chase it down, contain it, you're hunting it. Mm -hmm. right? I'm thinking. Um, yeah. Here's another one. Cash. A cash is like a weapons cash. Ah, also, I don't know if that's related. He has uh, C-A-S-H, cash, like ready money. It's money that is stored and ready to go, which you can take out. Then on the other hand, you also have Latin... Capere, uh, which gives us words like 
capacious, which means basically spacious, but also caption. Capacity. Probably capacity. Yeah, that's a good one. Captor, captivate, captivity, captive. Cool. Isn't that cool? And, oh, also probably related to catch and cop. And then, now this is this should really blow your mind here, because this same root seems to give us Latin conceptum. I thought you were going to say capitan, but okay. Conceptum, like concept? Capitan might also be related, but concept is what I'm thinking of. You know what? Keep going, keep going. I'm okay. pulling something up. So conceptum, which seems to be related to, obviously to English, conceive, but then also to words like deceive, perceive, perception, apperception, imperceptible. And now get this. I said deceive. Well, okay, deceit. How about conceit? So the word conceit, listen to this. The word conceit was originally something formed in the mind. It was a different, an older form of the word concept. Right. Then it becomes, a conceit becomes an ingenious thought. Mm -hmm. And then conceit becomes an exaggerated estimate of your ability to think. And then it just becomes an exaggerated estimate of so yourself. So that's just because of the prefix, I mean, the element con. No, it's because of the element seat. Seat. I thought we started with con. Okay, right, seat. Con is the prefix to, yes, yes, yes. to what we're dealing with. And then this seems to get us all the way to, like, susceptible. Uh, the word prince is a contraction of uh, primo capus. It's, there's that capus again. First placeholder is the primo capus. That gives us principle like the school principal, it gives us principal, like a fundamental, it gives us principality. Wow. wow. And then we this also, really... yeah, this is pretty wild. We probably also get the word occupant from this, the cup part of occupant. So this was a very prolific root in Indo-European. And get this, this is going to okay. bring us, hold on. Remember what I said was the fundamental meaning of this root okay. from Indo-European? Mm -hmm. He says, uh, take, grasp, or hold. Now get this. What's this do in Spanish? It gives us the word caja. Ca that's cash. Caixa, caja. Yeah. Like in, in Portuguese is, is a box. Yeah. But caja sounds like what in Hebrew? Like this. Cach. Yeah. Take. Take. <laughs> okay, that's fun. <laughs> but you know, like the box in Portuguese is caja. And ca caja, I think it's box. Well, there you go. Yeah. Wow. That's kind of cool. Wow, we've just really gone around. Can you like wrap some of that up? I got a little bit, my brain just went a little bit pah. Yeah, so <laughs> we have this Proto-Indo-European root, which comes into Latin and does all kinds of crazy stuff. So on the one hand, it gives us... Again, the word is, the root is? K-A-P. K-A-P. Is the projected root. So it essentially means take, grasp, or hold. So on the one hand, it gives us like capere, which is like spacious. It's also closing something up in space. Mm -hmm. On another hand, it gives us capsa, box, we, which is the, we Our starting point was capsule. Right. That takes us back to that. Capsa. It also gives us the cap part of like concept, con, concept, con, concept. 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 Yes. Right. Um, and then even principal and occupant. Princi okay, so this yeah. is a nice linguistic thing. Yeah, fine. That, that's a weird contraction. Yeah, because that's why I got lost. Like, wait a yeah. minute, is there? Did I did I forget? Did I not notice something? Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Words are fun. <laughs> so I thought of an idea. Like, I, I don't know if this is a little bit too far well, afield. Speaking of words and boxes. Yeah. So I actually wrote a poem once called Words, hmm. and it's really short. So this is something I wrote when I was really into David White. So he's like like an existential poet. 
but I just thought that it was a cool concept because the whole idea is to box in to a box a concept. Mm. So I have this, mm. uh, I can read the whole thing. Uh, yeah, go for it. Words, the toy things of poets, weapons of orators, the stuff of prose and tales, the articulation, classification, hold your breath, compartmentalization and domestication of the abstract, mm. of the sensuality and awareness and perception, of the fabric of interconnections in our life, of the happenstance in our place of, and time, of emotions, arising from the depths of the unknown psychological and biological pasts, histories unknown and yet experienced in that shared space called language, while so limited to culture, place of birth, space and time, contingencies upon which and through which our mind may escape the bondage of the now, those very same contingencies which allowed that thought to emerge. Yeah, well, I particularly like that part there where you're talking in the same breath about the sharing capacity of language and then also the way that language is limited right. by, by the culture, you, the culture it was developed here. in. Yeah. So there's all of that history that's involved in what a word is, mm -hmm. and you're just getting the final product. You have no idea where this came from. Yeah. But that shapes the lens in which you see the world. Yeah. Right? We're going to get later into it, Lashon HaKodesh, and what is like the language, you know, we're, we're getting to that later, to the ascent, why language is so important in Judaism, right? And 70 languages and all that stuff. But yeah, so it's like the very fact that we can even have the tools to think about what, how we think is because we've managed to domesticate, the, to box in these abstract ideas, mm. and now we can use them. But the way we box them in is very, very, what was the word that is contingent? Like mm -hmm. it just, it happened to be this way, but if it's yeah. another way, like your brain's going to see things differently. Mm -hmm. Well, you were bringing out the duality of the, of the word uh, teva. Before. Yeah, teva is like rashe tevot, we say initials, right? A teva is a, is a word. Yeah. Is but it it's a also word? a box. Yeah. It's a yeah. box that contains. So we have a metaphor for what a word is. A word is like a container. A word is a box. It's a container something. that conveys some sort of abstract working definition of something. Yeah. So I wanted to get a little bit into loan words. Mm -hmm. And I have a particular loan word in modern Hebrew that drives me a little bit nuts. Can you just, for, for our audience, explain what a loan word is? Ah, okay. So here's uh, a loan word is a word that becomes a word in a language that was borrowed from another language. So here's the example mm -hmm. that I think will we'll get the point across. So in English, you can have toast for breakfast. Mm -hmm. Right now in Israel, you can also have toast, but it is not what you have for breakfast in America when you have toast. It's, so it's clearly related, but it's different. They're both uh, like recooked bread. The the te the technical the proper Hebrew word for toast in Hebrew is tznimim, tznim. We say toast, but like I don't like we sort of say tostim tostim. People say toasting French all toast, the time. This is, this is a funny thing. In English, you cannot say, I had toast for breakfast. Toasts. Yeah. Toasting. There is no plural of toast. It's a mass noun. Whereas in okay. Hebrew, it's a, it's a count noun. And you can have, ekacha shne toastim. You can have shne borekasim. Borekas is already plural. Is it? Borekas. Because of the S at the end? I think so. I think, uh -huh. I think it's from a language where that's okay, for, yeah. Form. Anyway, borekasim. Yeah. Okay. Um, but the point is, so modern Hebrew borrows the word from English or whatever other language it got it from, toast, 
and then transforms it or adapts it to this new context where instead of having, you know, just a plain piece of bread with some butter and jam on it maybe for, for breakfast, instead you have this grilled sandwich. And that's what a toast is. You take today, yeah, bread today toast is a grilled put, sandwich. You put some pizza sauce on I'm it. I'm saying here in Israel when you say tuna. toast. Yeah, yeah. No, Israel, so, so the yeah, toast that you're referring to, the American toast, we call it snimim, which it's a rare word, but people don't usually eat that for breakfast, so you don't call it. Yeah, who wants toast to Toast is that? a sandwich. Yeah. yeah, it's a toasted sandwich. Yeah, that's the point. Yes, so okay. that's a loan word. That is a loan word. Okay, okay. so a loan word is a word that ta taken from one language but it means something different as it's used as no, a foreign no, no, word no, no, in no, a different language. No, no, no. It doesn't have to mean something different. But it's from another language. It's right. a loan it's word. It's a borrowed word, a loan word. Loan, L-O-A-N, not L-O-N-E, which is what I thought it was until I looked at your notes. Right, Until right, this very moment, that's what I thought it meant. Ah, okay. It's so, a loan. Okay. No, no, it's not a loan. It's not a loan. It's a loan. <laughs> Amazing how not knowing which borrowed. loan it is yeah, makes you think you completely differently there about what we're talking about. So the point is, so loan words can mean exactly Exactly what they mean in their original language, or they can have a close meaning, like with toast, or they can have a very, very different meaning. And I have a favorite example for you here. Go for it. And it's the word in Japanese, baikingu. And baikingu in Japanese mm -hmm. means buffet. A buffet, like a smorg. Like a, a smorgasbord. Yeah. Right. Now, what you have to know is that this word, baikingu, in Japanese, came from the word Viking. Like the actual Vikings. Like the Vikings. Those guys. Those guys. But okay. there is no V sound in Japanese, so it's turned right. into a B sound. And it's, uh, there are syllables. Uh, you don't have a consonant without a vowel after it in Japanese, except for a few exceptions. So Okay. So you can't just have Viking. You have to have biking something. So biking. I get. I get it. Okay. So you got it? Uh, okay. So you have this word Viking, which is actually speaking of ships. And speaking Philistine, of ships. Yeah. And, yeah. And yeah, all that and words getting around. So the word Viking is phonetically transformed, and now the meaning has been radically transformed. Why on earth would a Viking? What would mean? Japanese have anything to do with the Vikings? Different part of the oh, world. Because the first buffet in Japan was at a restaurant called Viking. And why that's did they like, have a buffet? Like because zero. of smorgasbord. I was expecting, that. that's so weird. It's almost lame. It's like the first restaurant, the first time they had a smorg this in Japan amazing. was at the place called the Viking. They're, and so it was, it's, it's cool. Japanese experience I was, I was, I was waiting for the crazy story of how in the year 900, the no, Vikings, no, like no, I was no. waiting for the Vikings no. and the Samurais, man. <laughs> <laughs> no, the Vikings didn't make it to Japan, but uh, the smorgasbord did. It's funny. It's just, it's just like, if, if they would have fought with Samurai, that would have been so much cooler. <laughs> I'm sorry to disappoint. <laughs> I thought it was an amazing story. It anyway, is. we should differentiate loan words from signaling because this is a thing that people do. So, signaling. Yeah. So you can use Latin or French in your English to let people know that you're a smarty pants. Right? That's not a loan word. Ipso facto. Right. Yes. Yes. That. Right. The same way, you know, you can use Hebrew, Aramaic, or Yiddish in your English to let people know you're part of the from club. Gewald. Gewald, yes. Okay. Or if you're if you're in New York you, you and you want to show you're in the Syrian community, it's Hadid. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> so now I have second order loan words for you. Okay. These Ooh. are words that went from language A into language B, assumed a different enough meaning that then they were borrowed back from language B into language A. 
Not any other language, but language A. And other languages too, but also wow. language A. Okay, so here's my first example. It's the word turquoise. The color. The color. Or the stone. As we know it, or the stone, right. So the French called the, I'm getting this from mentalfloss.com, by the way. So the French got the blue color gem Turkish stone, and the Turkish stone became known as Turkis. Okay. Right, or Pierre Turkis. Please don't persecute me for my pronunciation of French. I do not claim to be able to do it. And then the color of this, this stone made such an impression on people that it came to mean just that color by itself because okay. the color was so distinct. And then the color word was borrowed back into Turkish as, I don't know how to pronounce Turkish, but tukuaz, right, which no longer means Turkish. You just have to sound like a Turkey speaking Japanese. I don't know about mm -hmm. that. But uh, Turkish and Japanese might be related, actually. Interesting. But now that word means blue-green in Turkish. That is so cool. Turkish, okay, right? so that what you, what you do call it a second level? I called it a, like a second-order loan word. Second-order loan word. So it went from Turkish into French and then back into Turkish with a transformed but related meaning. Okay. Okay, so here's another word for you. This one uh, I think you should know, right? So uh, there was a word in Spanish, tronada, which meant thunderstorm. Okay. Which got borrowed into English and was turned into... Tornado. Tornado. They put a spin on that. <laughs> yes. And then it was borrowed back <laughs> into twisted. Spanish as tornado to mean tornado. That's so... So, tornada and tornado. Tornada. Tornada is, tornada? The, is the original yeah. storm. And then it, but tornado also means tornado. That's so weird. They have the original word in the same language. Right, so Spanish, correct us if we're wrong on this, but it seems like Spanish should have two words that have distinct but closely related meanings. So tronada for thunderstorm. Actually, it sounds like thunder, doesn't it? Tronada? Sorry. Thunder. Yeah, it's missing uh, the end, but you never uh, know how these some, things work. Yeah, okay. So tronada for thunderstorm and tornado for tornado. And it got the second word, tornado, from English. But English got the word tornado from Spanish. Tronado. Well, I mean, we already know that English is is a pretty much a patchwork. Uh, it's the it's Frankenstein Creole. of languages. Creole. It's Creole language. English. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's what a Creole is. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Cool. So now we also have uh, lots of loan words in the Tanakh. So we've been talking about our gaz. Mm -hmm. um, but here's some a whole others. Bunch, yeah. yeah. Here's some others that people might not be aware of. From Egyptian, we got the word avnet. Which is kind of like a belt. A belt for the Kohanim. So this mm -hmm. is a very fundamental thing for us, you know, super important in the, the temple service. And the word for it is coming from Egyptian, which is pretty mm -hmm. pretty amazing that, that such an important thing would have a foreign word attached I to mean, it. I if, mean, if you're coming out of Egypt and you're describing the priestly garments... Mm -hmm. You're mm -hmm. using the, the, the skill sets that were known, let's say, from the treasures of King Tom. I mean, this was royal, like the, the, mm -hmm. the skills mm -hmm. were there. And a lot mm -hmm. of the, the tabernacle vessels can be understood in the context of Egyptian, you know, uh, crafts, mm -hmm. right? Uh, wooden boxes plated in gold, you know, fitting in small mm -hmm. cut stones, mm -hmm. like all that mm -hmm. stuff. And then you have supposedly contemporary that thing, you know, mm -hmm. make enough net. I mean, it's not so surprising. No, no, not not, not surprising right. at all. Into if you think about how things would develop historically, I guess it's 
on some level, like you, you want to look at these things that are so central and important to us and say, well, that must be something that we developed. But I have to say, sometimes I, I think, you know, the Jewish people, we don't actually invent anything. What we do is we, we pick the best of the best from everywhere and we, we put a hechsher on the good stuff. Like, oh, that's kosher. Yep. Here's another one. So Akkadian. Now, people today think of Akkadian, like, well, nobody thinks of Akkadian. But, but if you think of Akkadian, you Unless might Unless you're think into ancient Near East. Yeah, well, like, it's almost synonymous with something, like, so archaic, Akkadian. Yeah, archaic, you, that, you mean, yeah. you hear Akkadian, you think ancient. Right. But Akkadian was super important. And, uh, it's and the it, base for a lot of the other languages in yes. the right, the earliest writing. Yeah. And we got a, a bunch of uh, a bunch of cool words from it. So, machos. So, Machoza, machoz, right? right? The so region. For, yeah, uh, border region in particular. Uh, Sagan, like Sagana Kohen. That's, yes, that's yes. already, um, that's Mishneic, mm -hmm. but we also have that in Ezra. Suganu, yeah, we have right? it. Hasarim uh, Saganim, And uh, probably also the word Igeret, which means letter. Right? Which we find in Persian period. We have right, in Megillat Esther. Megillat Esther has the word Igeret. And you think that's probably, Akkadian. Right, so it probably comes from the Akkadian word uh, Egirtu. Which means? Which means letter. Okay. Right. I am getting these secondhand from the, the Akkadian Lexicon Companion for Biblical Hebrew by Chaim Tawil. Which is Arabic for mountain. I Tawil. mean, tall. No, no, tall. Tall? tall? Okay. Tall. Tawil. Tawil. Nice. Um, is that a loan word into English from Arabic? I'm just kidding. I have Don't no answer. idea. Anyway, here's some big ones from Sumerian. So Sumerian gives us uh, Oman, which would also give us Emunah. And Omanut. And amen. Mm -hmm. uh, it's so a very important word. Very important word. So the word for artist, for faith, for maybe your will. And for amen. training. And for training, also training. Right. That's right. Uh, Sumerian probably also gives us the word kise, chair, throne, chair. or toilet, if we're going back there. Beta kise. Beta kise. Um, probably also gives us the word ikar. Ikar with an aleph or with an ayin? With an ayin, I believe. Ikar. Ikar. Ikar is in a principle or a, an important mm -hmm. thing. Yep. And the word hechal. Hechalu, yeah. Right. Yeah, so, yeah hecha, hechalu, that's known. Yeah. yeah, you got that? Okay, so from, from Akkadian, ekalu, mm -hmm. from Sumerian, egal, meaning big house, and this one's even better. In Sefer Yonah, in mm -hmm. the, the book of Jonah, you've got u hamalachim, right? And malach, the, 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 the sailors, the sailors malach. afraid, right? So I always thought that the word for sailors, malach, was like salty sailors, yeah. right? Because the word for salt is melach, right. right? So the suggestion is that the word for sailors here is not from the word for salt, but instead from Sumerian ma, ship, and lach to direct, drive, or steer. Navigator. A navigator, yeah. That's exactly. so cool. So a malach navigator. means a navigator. A ship navigator, yeah. That, that is that cool? really cool. I think that's really cool, yeah. Wow. So anyway. you mentioned a word from... Farsi, from Old Persian. Yeah, I, my favorite is paradise, because that's the most famous one. It's not the only one, but, the, but that's a Persian word, pardes. So English paradise from... The Persian pardes, which means garden. So listen to how it comes up. It comes up three times in Tanakh. First mm. of all, we have Kohelet. Mm. I made to myself gardens and pardesim, and I planted in them all these fruit trees. Fruit, 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 yeah. fruit trees. So, yeah, we have Pardes there. Then we have uh, Pardes in Shirashirim, in Song of Songs. 
של החייך פרדס רימונים עם פרי מגדים, it's clearly talking about fruit, it's talking mm-hmm. about like a grove of... Mm-hmm. of an uh, orchard. An orchard, thank you, of pomegranates. And then we have uh, the guardian of the pardesim in the palace of Artaxerxes with Nehemiah, who, who, whom Nehemiah asked him for wood for building the second temple. Hmm. So he, he, he has allowed him to have wood. So wow. this is the, the person who's in charge of the trees, hmm. not fruit trees. So that's really cool. That so you have cool. the word pardes, and that word pardes later on, centuries later, became, uh, got the acronym for, uh, for pshat remez drash sod, for the mm-hmm. four mm-hmm. different levels and layers of meaning in, in, in Torah. But that's, that's much later. Mm-hmm. Uh, pardes just means a garden. So we have the famous story with There for rabbis who, in, who went into Pardes, but it really a means... Garden of Secrets. Yeah, they just went, they got involved in like this very complex stuff and some of them went bonkers. But whatever it is that they did, yeah, they I meditated, mean, like, they went into higher spheres, whatever, that, uh, esoteric. Yeah, I don't know if we know how to... Yeah, they're going into something esoteric. Right, but, but sure. calling it... Uh, Pardes as pshat remez drash, so the acronym for the four different levels of mm. meaning, that's anachronistic. That didn't, wasn't at the time, known right. at the time. So the, the word pardes, I've heard it mentioned before as meaning specifically an enclosed garden, which I think throws light on that usage of it when we talk about arban nechnesula pardes, the four who go into a garden, an enclosed garden, esoteric garden. Mm. Right? So if it's enclosed, if it's a special garden that belongs to the king, we know that this is a feature of Persian architecture that they would have in the palaces enclosed gardens. And things I mean, like you that. have the, not Persians, but some of the Persian palaces were in what was previously Babylon. You have mm-hmm. the famous hanging gardens mm-hmm. right, right. of, and the reason that the hanging gardens were built is because the queen was missing her home. Was she from Persia or from some faraway country? Mm-hmm. And he wanted to build something which would please her that was in likeness of what she was used to in her royal uh, palace hmm. back at home. So he built the hanging gardens. Early Greek Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar. Wow. Hmm. Okay, so now I've got some Greek. And before we mentioned uh, Greek in the Mishnah, mm-hmm. and the Mishnah and the Gemara and the Midrash are loaded with Greek terms, but we even have some Greek popping up in the Tanakh. And I'll give you my two favorites, mm-hmm. which come from Sefer Daniel. So we're, we're under Babylonian rule. And the Nebuchadnezzar, are we speaking about the Hanging Gardens? Exactly. That's the guy. This is the guy. So Nebuchadnezzar builds this magnificent statue of himself and everybody's supposed to bow down. And the cue to bow statue. down is a musical cue. And two of the instrument names are Pisanterin and Sumponia. So Sounds like symphony. Exactly. So the modern word symphony comes from Greek very clearly, symphonia, mm-hmm. sum, right. together, or mm-hmm. one phonia, like voices together. And here we have it in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, symphonia. So the book as of the Daniel, an right. The book of Daniel, just to contextualize, mm-hmm. is the transition between the the Babylonian period into the Persian period. Persian period, and of course the Greeks and the Persians had plenty to do with each other. Lots. Yes. Now the other word there, psanterin. Sounds like the modern Hebrew for a, for a piano. Psanter, right? So uh, that might also remind you of the Greek word psalmos or psaltery, which comes from Greek. So, psalmos as in tehillim? Right, exactly. So the word psalm. Right, with the silent P. What does that the, the mean? Psalm. Psalmos in Greek is a song sung with a harp. Mm. 
And a psaltery is a, a word ultimately meaning an, a stringed instrument in the ancient period. Cool. Yeah. So we put together psaltery, psalm, psalm in English, and... Um, that makes sense. And the mm. piano. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the piano England. is a string instrument. A stringed instrument. The really cool thing about the... Speaking about borrowing, um, I'll, I'll go a little bit far afield, but the classical image of King David is King David playing... A harp, harp, right? Yeah. And many of the many. And some of the psalms. Yes, but some of the many famous pictures, the earliest pictures of King David, are actually borrowed from Orpheus. Oh wow! It's really like yeah. you actually have you can you can compare them one to one from yeah. the same periods of time. So like this synagogue has yeah. Orpheus, except it's King. It's obviously King David in a synagogue. So you have that in behind the Ark in the Douai Ropa Synagogue from the third century. You have it in a mosaic floor from Gaza. That was found and the face was destroyed. They reconstructed it based on a photo, but this was, it's in the Israel Museum. That's interesting. Usually when I think about the Orpheus myth in connection with the Tanakh, I think about Lot, actually. And the because reason, he looked back. Well, his wife looked back. So Speaking Uridice, of Malachim. Right, Eurydice, she looks right. back on her way out of hell. He looks back at her. And then she, because he looks back at her, then he can't have her, right? That's Orpheus. He looks back at his love, right? That was the deal. He's not allowed to look back. And like oh, right before he leaves, her, to, you're right, and you're he looks right, back. Right, yes. And yeah, so she's gone you. forever. Yep. Except she becomes a pillar of salt, yeah, which, is, which I would love to do a podcast on salt. At some we'll get point. there. We'll get there. Yeah. Cool. So we, we do have Greek all over the Mishnah, mm -hmm. particularly I've been paying attention recently to architectural terms, so like a chsadra, which is its own kind of box, like a guard booth at the opening of a, mm -hmm. a courtyard. And then we also, later, uh, we have... Th that's that's Mishnaic already, right? That's not... Yeah, yeah, biblical. that's, that's Mishnaic. We also have traklin, which is triclinium, where mm -hmm. you actually had three people reclining, mm -hmm. sitting together, a triclinium, right? right? Oh, yeah. very nice. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. Yeah, um, yeah I mean, there, there's... Almost no end to the number of Greek terms we could throw out. I mean, literally, there's hundreds, there's, there's dictionaries. Terms, yeah. There's dictionaries. And uh, I'll give you one of my uh, favorites from probably I'm guessing a somewhat later period, mm -hmm. uh, like post Mishnah. It's a term I believe we have this in the Gemara. So a name for an angel. Lots of the angels have Greek names. Yes. Um, Matata is one, and here's another one, Sandolfon. So the guy who you know when you when you pick up your sandal because you think it's the phone. Right, what, that's a dragnet? What is that? Where the guy uses his... I don't know, but you know what I'm talking about. He's, talk, he's, yeah, talking yeah, yeah. Into, he's talking into his, yeah. his shoe. Yeah, some like old spy so show. So sandal right? phone means the... You, right. had, you had a so, nice... Yeah, so you might think that it's sandal, like sandal, phone. So we're expecting like an angel Like who Hermes. Has, yeah, like a he Hermes. Because he has the winged yeah. shoes yeah. and he goes and he's the messenger. Exactly, angel. some kind of messenger figure, exactly, mm -hmm. right? So... It turns out to mean almost the same thing if we trace the etymology probably more authentically through Greek, where it would be like san would be coming from sun, like together or one, mm -hmm. and then not phone, but adelphon, like san adelphon. San adelphon, meaning uh, adelphon is brother, like Philadelphia, like brotherly, right. the Phila. city of brotherly Phila. love. So the idea is that the angel sandalphon always is in connection with another angel. He has a kind of he's not He's not alone. He has an accompanying function. Cool. Anyway, should I get into some Hamido-Semitic roots? 
Uh, what's that? Okay, so <laughs> what's Hamido? I mean, this is a this is a huge rabbit hole here. You you're you're going to take us into Wonderland. Yes. So Hebrew is a Semitic language, mm-hmm. and there are other Semitic languages like Arabic, for example. Mm-hmm. And then you can wonder, well, where did the Semitic languages come from? And for many, many years, people have been noticing that the Semitic languages are not only, there are also Semitic languages in Africa, but there are other African languages which are not Semitic. There's mm-hmm. something else, but they seem to have an awful lot in common. So you have this kind of super language family, mm-hmm. super family of languages, which is called Hemeto-Semitic. So the same way that we talk about Indo-European, we can also talk about Hemeto-Semitic. I'm just wondering if Semitic comes from Shem and yeah, Hemeto yeah, comes from Ham. That's exactly right, yeah. No way. Yeah, yeah. Okay, that's mm-hmm. going to take us to the Teva. Okay. Oh, wow. I got okay. that. Yeah. I like that. All right. Okay, hold on to that one. So uh, here's an example, since we're talking about languages. One word for language is the word, this is also true in English, the word tongue, right? Which eh. is, right. So in Hebrew, lashon. Lashon. Right? So in Hebrew, you have lashon. And then uh, this occurs in other Semitic languages. And in Berber, you have something like lush. In Egyptian, you have something which is also similar. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. Uh, also in Coptic, in Chadic, in Central Chadic, in East Chadic, in Cushitic. So you have Lysis, Ulysses, Halishum. That kind of sounded like Ulysses. Everything okay. is coming back to this lesh, less kind of lesh, thing. Lesh. Not the Arabic right. lesh, lesh. Which <laughs> yeah. okay. right. Another word that does this, for example, is uh, shame. So the, the Hebrew word for, for name is also going to be in Berber as uh, sum, call, name, Egyptian, smi, tell, central, chadic, siam, uh, sim, meaning whisper, uh, and a whole bunch of other You're languages that roll. I don't even know here. Yeah. To give you just one more example, so we were talking about the word uh, rogas. Right. Like argaz. Before, argaz. Like yeah. Argaz. So... I tried to find something in this dictionary that mm-hmm. I was looking at, and uh, it looks like there's a root rag or rug, uh, which means tremble. Oh, so that's very much related to how we understand rug is. Right. So in Arabic today, you have ragag. I don't know okay. exactly how to say that in Arabic, but it means tremble. And then mm-hmm. in East Chadic today, you also have a basically the same word meaning tremble. Okay. Now, all that raises a question. Where does Lashon HaKadosh come from? Where does the language of the Torah come from? Because you're showing me all these roots that go into all these other languages. Are you saying that, you know, these words are, that this language, Hebrew, the language of the Torah is derived from these other languages? Because there's a typical reading of Migdal Bavel, of the Tower of Babel, where you say the original language was the language of the Torah, Hebrew, or Lashon okay. the holy tongue. Is that, that is that the tongue, that the story is that they wanted everybody to be speaking the same words and the same concept, same language? That's, that's Lashon HaKodesh? Are we know, we're saying that that's the language that it had to be? Well, I, I'm saying that there's this kind of typical religious reading of the Tower of Babel where everybody is speaking the language of the Torah, and then God doesn't like what they're doing with the tower. So he disperses them and and then they just have an explosion of different diverse diverse languages. But the original language is this language, the language of the Torah. And to do these kind of etymological connections with these other languages is maybe, well, maybe you just want to say, well, okay, sure. They're, they're speaking fragments of that, that they got from Migdal Babel. You just project it 
in a different direction historically. But if you're going to say that there's a predecessor language or predecessor languages to the language of the Torah, hmm. then it's a little bit threatening. The problem is that if the language of the Torah is an evolved language, a language that's developed as other languages have, then doesn't that mitigate the extent to which it's revelation? Don't we want the language of revelation to be a language that's beyond human language, a language that's from the heavens, a language that's not sullied and dirtied by our humanity? And don't we have expectations for the Torah that it should be a kind of truth of things in and of themselves, that it should be truth beyond the empirical stuff that meat brains can figure out. This harkens to magic in the Renaissance, where people were trying to develop codes that would encode all of knowledge into language itself. So don't we expect the language of truth, the language of revelation, to give us words for things that aren't just arbitrary symbols, but tell us something about the thing itself? Shouldn't the name itself, the sign itself, go beyond convention and get deep into the nature and the, the semantic nature of the thing? So with those expectations, it's threatening to see foreign terms and human characteristics in the language of the Torah. But then... You run into these words all the time, like, for example, the word ruach or okay. yad or words that don't fit into the typical three-letter root structure or have some strange morphology like tahom, right? Oh, yeah, well, tiamat. Right. Tiamat, I mean... right? So you see it looks like the Torah is borrowing these avnet, right, is borrowing these words from other languages. So what are you doing borrowing these languages? I mean, even talking about what we understand as tefillin, Chazal say tatpat in Afriki means two. And I don't know what sure which African language you're talking about. You have anything on that? I went looking for that. I couldn't find good sources to I don't know. I don't know what that was. But the point is that they're saying that there's a lot of words that are assumed to have some sort of connection, maybe anachronistic with other languages. I mean, there's words that relate to water. I mean, remember when they talk about how do you identify what the citron is, the, the etrog, pri-etz hadal. So mm -hmm. there, there's, there is one place where Chazal say it has to do with hydra, with water, which is Greek. And mm -hmm. then they say because this is a plant that requires extra water and everybody knows that oh, that... hydra hadar. Right. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's interesting of these interesting mean. kind of plays and words. And Chazal, I mean, which means like the Byzantine period, like they're really, they really go far with playing with languages, mm -hmm. like in ways which make you wonder, like, did they really buy it? Like, did, they know that that's not what people actually spoke then, right? But you have this license to play with the language like that and draw meaning out of this endless wellspring, which they're calling Lashon Kodish. Like, there's so, these meanings in there that mm -hmm. they're assuming are, you can play with them and it's okay. So it seems like they're, they're saying that there's a, a metaphysical reality to language. Like, if it yes. sounds this way and we're able to pull these meanings out of it and to be, uh, uh, I don't have a word in English for this. We, if we can be dorish, these foreign words, if we can investigate or pull meaning out of these foreign words according to how we hear it with the language of the Torah, then hmm. are, there, are they positing a more fundamental meaning to that word than it even means in the, the language that we're borrowing it from? 
yeah, I mean, even even the way words themselves evolve to mean different things. Look, I, I don't know what the consensus is on this. I just heard this once in a lecture mm -hmm. where some, some scholar mentioned that the word shalom, mm -hmm. uh, we know the shalom to refer to like prosperity and peace. Or wholeness. Or... Wholeness, right. But shalom in Tanakh may have meant something different, may have just meant physical well-being, not peace in the sense of the Pax mm -hmm. Romana. Right? It's, it's only in that period that it refers to that. You shall be shalem. You shall be whole. Mm -hmm. right? Not that there shall be peace. Oh, you're saying that the political meaning of shalom is kind of an extrapolation from the meaning that would have on the level of an individual, like you're whole, you have so peace. Pe so peace that doesn't pe seem like such a stretch to me. No, no, no. Because they're, they're very closely related, yeah. but they didn't mean that in the Torah. So, for well, example, sure. I mean, so for example, when 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 the uh, Isha Ashwin Amit tells her husband she's going to see the Navi, he goes, "What is it? Lechodesh v'lo Shabbat?" She says, "Shalom." So we we take that to mean like, that doesn't mean peace. It just means like everything's good. Uh huh. Everything's whole. There's no problem. It's all good. But in the times of the the uh, the Byzantine period, you find the word Shalom written in all these mosaic inscriptions in synagogues. Shalom, Amen. Shalom al Israel. Like mm -hmm. over there, it's already clear that it means something else. It's the word means something else in the same language. It's gained some new meaning. Okay, but that does that help us understand what we're doing with foreign words here? I'm not sure. What I, what I'm trying to get at, I mean, there, there's a, a a really deep problem, which is where does language come from at all, right? This is like glottogenesis is the the fancy scholarly term. Glottogenesis. Glottogenesis. Like what is glotto? Glotto is a tongue. Right? Okay. And genesis is genesis, right? The beginning. The, the beginning of language. Right. There's also the, the same Greek root for gynecology. Gyno means women. Right. right? Exactly. Yeah. Right. Genesis, the gn thing. So where the, like the womb of the something, where it comes from, its origins. Yeah, okay. Exactly. Okay. Okay. Right. Genesis. So my question is, if we, we talked about this before with uh, the palace built on the, the trash heap. Mm -hmm. Right, when we're talking about evolution. So here, if we look under the hood of the language of the Torah, are we somehow, does this in any way violate our sense of the integrity of the language of the Torah? That's, the, that's, the, that's always the question, honestly. When, when, when going into these levels of academic discussion, there's always that threat of, uh, t there's this danger of, getting so involved in the details that we forget the whole. Well, it seems like Chazal, it seems like our sages are aware of this and not threatened by it. Right. Because of what you were saying before. So I don't think we should be threatened by it. I mean, I'm sure that they knew what they were doing. Yeah. And they didn't see it as a problem. Mm -hmm. right? And they said, like, there, there is a level of legitimacy to what we're doing, even though it's somewhat anachronistic, but that's okay because there's a metaphysical level in which this language can do that and it, it can contain that. Mm -hmm. And it has that within it. So it's, it's beyond just one particular proto-language. Like it's not the he spoken Hebrew language. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm looking at that, that metaphysical level that's, um, that's a, I guess, on my level, it looks like it's assumed. And I'm, I'm going, well, can we really do that? And then the, the side of me that is trying to be a Talmid Chachamim says, well, you learn from our sages that, yes, you do that. 
right? That's how you learn you can do it. You see their example mm-hmm. and, and it works, right? And then there's another side of me that's asking. I don't think these sides are necessarily in com- conflict, but I'm just wondering, how does that work metaphysically? How do we know about that? Can I, like, I see the example, I get that I can do this, but can I confirm that in some way? Because it doesn't work in the simple mechanisms of history. The metaphysics, it doesn't, the, the metaphysics of history that we have today uh, are not sufficient to give us the metaphysics of language that our sages are using. Does that make sense? As a question, yes. Doesn't mean I have an answer. Okay. <laughs> but it's a good question. It's a good question. We, we've, we've gone deep down the rabbit hole of, of knowing too much. Speaking of knowing, of knowing. Knowing. <laughs> yeah, knowing. Come on, oh, that was awful. Uh, sorry. Okay. No, but, but, but I, will, I think it's a nice way to, to sort of, speaking of out of the box, to, mm. to talk about the first man uh, to leave the box, right? Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. teva, the teva, yeah. the box, the ark. There actually are depictions of it as a box, even though there are some very interesting Mesopotamian tablets which have the instructions of how to build an ark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the question, how much is big as a cubit, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Anyway, that's a little, <laughs> not, so, not so popular today, so I'm just going to allude to that. Um, but out of the box, so... The idea of Migdal Bavel is really the attempt to suppress uh, Hold the... Hold on, backtrack one yeah, second. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm okay. connecting, I'm connecting. Okay, it. all right. Is to suppress what was supposed to happen, leaving the Teva. So the Teva was really, here's a new world. Noach comes out of the Teva. The world has been flooded. It's restarted. And he has his three children, Shem, Ham, and Yefet. So we spoke about Hamido, Semitic, Ham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and the, we have Yefet. They have those different languages, right? Mm-hmm. And and these people are starting to spread out. And then this... Uh, exegetical understanding is that this was Nimrod, but we have the society, which is concentrated in Babylon, in Bavel, which is one of the primal cities, right? Mm -hmm. And they're saying like, we need to make sure that we don't spread out throughout the world, Mm -hmm. which may relate to what we find of the, like the building of ziggurats way back in like Ur's third dynasty, Mm -hmm. I mean, who knows? But you said that you have the epicenter of cities is this ziggurat, this stairway to heaven, Mm -hmm. which is deliberately in the epicenter. So everybody sees it, you stay together. Pulling people together Right, the family that prays together stays together, as Mm -hmm. we say. So there's this idea that draws everyone together. And it's on that backdrop Mm -hmm. that we have all these midrashim of, uh, of, of Nimrod and so on, and Avraham, et cetera. So what happens then is that he says, let's make it everybody, let's be uniform, let's be homogeneous, let's all speak the same language, talk about the same ideas, mm-hmm. and uh, and what do what's called, um, what was it called in 1984? Nimrod was the original social influencer. Yes. No, r- right speech? What's it called? In uh, new, new speech. New speech. New, new speak. speak. New speak in Engsak, right? English uh, socialism in, 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 in 1984, which is really... Incredibly relevant oh, well. today. Yeah. Um, so in that 1984 Big Brother version, you have the city. And the city becomes your new family. Mm. And everybody needs to gather, leave no ta'ir, to build the city mm-hmm. and to make a migdal. And God's reaction to that is, this is wrong, let me disperse them. And then you have this explosion of lil shonotam baratsotam begoyehem. You have what's this so, development so of language. What's so wrong about that? I mean, unity is so important. Uh, yes, strength through unity. Exactly. Um, that's, that's exactly what they say in all, those, in all those movies where you have this dystopian, you know, tyrants who are saying, you know, we need to save everyone. It's like that was, a, mm. that was V for Vendetta. 
That was such a great movie. I never read the comic book, but it's such a great movie. I never saw the movie. Wow. So anyway, the idea is that uh, you can't contain in a box the human nature, or the, 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 the biological need for spreading out and being diverse and growing and changing and adapting. You can't fight nature. You're pointing out that the progression through those chapters of Genesis there is from Noah trapped with his family in a teva in the ark. He leaves the box. And then they leave the box and there's an explosion of life and diversity, mm -hmm. which is Davka in reaction to the attempt to shut it down with the Tower of Babel, the Tower of Babel. And the explosion of diversity is in the realm of tevot, of words yes, or exactly. boxes. The domestication of the abstract. In my own words, <laughs> no, but but that, what, what is a word? A teva is the domestication of an abstract idea. It's a teva is a box, a corral, a corral. You're corralling. I am corralling, corralling in the wild. Creatures. Yes, the thestrals. Domesticating them. You know the thestrals. Yes, the right? thestrals. Very good. That's really cool. The only way you can actually see a thestral is if you've seen death. What does that have to do with us now? Well, how do you bury Egyptian dead? In a box, in a teva. Anyway, that was just uh, wrapping okay, it mommy. up with mummy. Okay, yeah, mummy. Wrapping it up with that, uh, <laughs> yes. Okay, well, you killed that one. We, 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 well, I made a case for it. <laughs> <laughs> or a casket. Or a kasha, kaha. Yeah. So, so I think that was just a nice way to show that the development of language has to do with breaking out of the box. You can't contain it. It needs to be, it needs to grow. Yeah. It needs to be diverse. That's what we need. Yeah, that's true. So speaking of Lashon HaKodesh, you can't put it in a box. Oh, wow. Okay, that's a beautiful point. That anybody who's trying to put Lashon HaKodesh, trying to put the sacred language into a box and say, okay, no, 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 it's only this, right? It can't integrate anything else into it that they're actually violating Let us scientifically define it and measure itself. it. It's like, it's like the Flatlanders trying to capture a three-dimensional being going through, cutting through, intersecting their world, and then wondering why they can't trap it. Mm. Right, a three-dimensional object running through a two-dimensional, or, or, or even in, you know, sphere world. So what you're saying is that, that that's, a, that's a different way to look at this metaphysical picture here, that what we're looking at as different strata of languages in time, mm -hmm. this is all part of one great whole. Perhaps. And that's what we're able to relate to through Lashon HaKodesh, and that way of relating to language, which is the, the Torah's language. That, that is a way of putting together all these fragments and coming to a holistic, a whole, Detective agency. Detective, detective like, agency. I'm running out of words here because I'm, I'm stuck in my, my stratum. We are. we got to break out of the box. I mean, this. I was just able to say this now because of this conversation. I didn't really have a handle on it before. So I think this is, this is productive. I just I didn't know I would, we'd be able to come up with that. Wow. Baruch Hashem. No, we're getting somewhere. And on that note, thank you very, very much for joining us for this episode of The, the Artifact, Artifact Podcast. Podcast. That's been fun.
If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, give us a five-star rating and a positive review, and share the Artifact podcast with everyone you know who would like it. If you've got a podcast, YouTube channel, blog, or something else, and you'd like to have on one or both of us, we'd be thrilled please get in touch. We'll have a Patreon page up soon, but right now, the best way to support the show is to help us get to the people who want to hear it. And of course, we're very happy to hear from you via social media. Use the hashtag ArtifactPodcast if you want to write something about us. Links to all our stuff are in the description below.